From WGCU News, this is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Anyone who spends money on anything, which is basically everyone, knows that we're living in a time of high inflation. From groceries and gas to home values and rent prices and new and used car values, consumers in the U.S. are spending more on most essential items. But while the current inflation rate is around 8.5%, unemployment is low, currently around 3.5%, and wages have increased over the course of the last year or so. And many leading economists didn't really see these high inflation times that were incoming. Just a few months ago in June, Chair of the Federal Reserve of the United States, Jerome Powell, said, I think we now understand how little we understand about inflation. To try to get a handle on what makes these post-pandemic shutdown economic times so unique, what exactly is driving the high inflation, and how our current economic conditions compare to the late 70s and early 80s, which is the last time we saw such high inflation, we're joined today by Matthew Klein. He's founder of The Overshoot. It's an online publication that focuses on the intersection of economics, finance, business, and public policy. He's also co-author of the 2020 book, Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace. In the past, Matthew has worked for Bloomberg and the Financial Times, and most recently, he was the economics commentator for Barron's. I spoke with him last Wednesday, August 10th. Let's hear that conversation now. Matt Klein, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you very much for having me. We invite you to weigh in on today's conversation using WGCU social media. Find the post for this episode on our Facebook page at WGCU Public Media. And then on Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So for starters, Matthew, tell us a bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So I write a subscription research service called The Overshoot, focusing on the global economy, financial markets, and public policy. Before that, I was the economics commentator at Barron's, and I also co-wrote the book Trade Wars Are Class Wars with Michael Pettis. So we're here to talk about inflation. Let's start with first principles. Define for our listeners what inflation is as if they have no idea. So inflation is what happens when the prices of all the things in the economy on average are going up. So you can have a situation where some prices are going up, some prices are going down, some prices are staying flat. That's not necessarily inflation. Inflation is when prices as a whole are rising, and they're rising faster than we want them to. Can you put our current historically high inflation numbers into context? Yes. So right now, the latest data we got on Wednesday, August 10th, is that prices are rising about 8.5% a year in the United States. That is the fastest pace that it's been since the early 1980s. So we're talking about 40 years. And before that, it wasn't even close. There was the 20 years or so, 25 years before last year, really. So basically, you know, 1995 to 2020, we're talking about an average inflation rate of about 2%. So it's a big increase. And according to a, a, a May poll by Pew, um, right now, inflation is the primary concern of most Americans, right? That's right. Yeah. And they said it's not even close. Is it possible to put that high concern into context, or has it been so long since we've had these inflation numbers this high? Is that kind of hard to do? So this specific polling question we may not be able to quite do, but the University of Michigan runs a survey of consumer sentiment. They've been doing this for over 50 years, and they have their measure of consumer confidence at its lowest level that it's been, uh, I believe, on, on record, actually. Um, and that's largely attributable to this question they have inside about news you've heard about price changes and that just being 
off the charts bad. So we really haven't seen anything like this in terms of this kind of pessimism and concern in, in decades. So if the sort of news you've heard is part of what drives people's concern, is that also part of what drives inflation? Um, in other words, many adults around us today haven't really ever seen inflation like this, and they see it come and they hear about it, so maybe they spend more. So is that sort of perception start of what part of what drives inflation? You know, that's a great question. And in a lot of formal economic models, that kind of mechanism is a really important part. They call it expectations. And the idea is, as you said, if you're worried about inflation when you weren't before, you then go out and you preemptively buy things to protect yourself. So far, we haven't actually seen this happening in the United States. So again, this Michigan survey I mentioned, they also ask questions about things like, is it a good time to buy a new car or an appliance or a house? And then they have all these little sub questions on, you know, why, why not? And what's interesting there is that people generally on all of these items where we have seen really big price increases, they say it's a really bad time to buy. And specifically, they say, unsurprisingly, the price is high. And also what's interesting is they say that it's not a good time to buy because they think prices will increase. So in other words, they don't anticipate that prices are going to keep going up and therefore it's not worthwhile to, you know, preemptively buy things as a hedge. And in fact, if you look at the, you know, price adjusted or volume based data of, of spending, we haven't really seen people going out and, you know, hoarding gasoline or, or buying more cars than they're used to or anything like that. So, so far, you know, we'll see if it holds up. But so far, it hasn't yet been affecting behavior in that kind of way, which is which is good. Is this recent onset of inflation something that economists, you know, sort of broadly speaking, saw coming? No. Uh, I mean, there, it's interesting because there, the people who were warning about it were warning about it for arguably, I think, the wrong reasons. And then the people who were not worrying about it were right about why they were not concerned. Uh, but then they missed kind of the headline that like actually inflation was a real problem. So the people who were concerned were saying, oh, you know, the government's borrowing and spending all this money in terms of the, you know, to respond to the pandemic. That's going to show up as inflation. If that were what happened, though, you would expect that people's spending would have gone up more or less in line with the money that they'd received. So if the government sends people, you know, about two trillion plus since the start of the pandemic in dollars, if there's an extra $2 trillion in spending, that would, you know, that's where you'd see the inflation. And yet that's not actually what we've seen, that the spending has basically tracked uh, wage income much more closely than, you know, this extra money that in fact, it's essentially all just been saved. And so that was what people who were not concerned about inflation were expecting, and they were right. And yet we had inflation anyway. So, you know, the extent that basically no one really predicted what actually happened. Is that because we're maybe in a sense in uncharted territory, you know, a, a global pandemic and the impacts that it had and the various ways that people and the economy responded to it? Is this um, uncharted territory? Yeah, I think it, it basically is. I mean, there are not really a lot of precedents for this kind of thing to happen, certainly at this kind of speed. Uh, and so it is very challenging. I, I mean, the one thing you could have looked at maybe was, and I remember looking at this, you know, a year and a half ago, was the experience we had at the end of World War II. You know, back then you had a situation where people weren't able to buy a lot of things they wanted because of rationing. And they were getting paid a lot because the government was hiring people to make things or to fight in the military. And so then when the war ends, there was this question of, is there's going to be this huge 
you know, inflationary rush or whatever. And there was, it was very brief and then it ended. Some of that had to do with getting rid of price controls and, and whatever. But like, that was like the one kind of example that we had. And even that, there are a lot of differences that are important between that and the pandemic. So there isn't really a lot we had to work on here for what, you know, how to think about how this is going to play out. Uh, I read a post that you wrote in the overshoot where you said many of our current challenges are due to failures to preserve supply during the first weeks and months of the pandemic. Is our current economic situation and the inflation in some ways driven by our economy's desire for short term instead of having a long long term perspective? I don't know if I would go quite that far. I think it's more just if you're you're running a business in, you know, February, March, April twenty twenty, and you saw what was happening and you remembered what happened in previous downturns, it would have been extremely risky to have assumed that the economy and consumer spending would snap back as quickly as it did. The prudent thing you would have done based on reasonable experience and based on looking at what was going on in the world would be to say, this is gonna be really severe. I should be cautious and cut back. There was a lot of government money that was sent to help prevent that outcome, but it came a couple months too late for certain industries. And some industries, they were just, even if they thought demand would come back, they were just very financially constrained. So. For example, car rental companies are a very good example here. They, you know, at least before the pandemic, they would borrow a lot of money secured by the value of the cars that they owned. And that was a fine model as long as people rented cars on a regular basis. But then you had the pandemic happen and nobody's traveling, nobody's renting cars. They still owe the money uh, that they, you know, to their creditors. So what do they do? They, they have to sell their cars, their fleets. That made sense at the time. Then it turns out people actually did want to travel and rent cars. It took a little while to come back, but it did happen. And then the car rental companies didn't have any cars available in their fleets. You know, they shrunk their fleets by hundreds of thousands of, of units. They had to go buy them back, and that took time. And they had to raise their prices by a lot in order to compensate. So that's like, a, you know, both of those things, both the buying back the used cars that they'd sold and raising their own rates had contributed surprisingly a large chunk of the total inflation. But like their decisions were perfectly reasonable at the time. Same thing with the automakers. Again, like focusing on motor vehicles here, they shut production completely for safety concerns at the very beginning of the pandemic. And then you know, they, they started turning it back on, but the, they were relatively cautious and not saying we're going to catch up and, and make up for the lost months where we weren't producing anything. They said, look, let's wait and see. And they were relatively cautious. And they also saw that one of their big customer groups the rental car companies were not buying, they were selling. So again, they, 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 they kind of felt like they were being reasonable here. I mean, it turned out to be wrong. And, and now it's really a problem because we don't have enough cars available and that's pushed up prices for things. But, you know, it made sense at the time, you know, blaming, you know, short termism in general, I think might be, might be overstating it. Or you look at oil, right? That's another one, right? Like invest oil companies, shale drillers and refiners and stuff. They saw oil prices crater in the beginning of the pandemic. And their response was, well, a, a lot of us had already gone through bankruptcy just a couple of years earlier, back in 2015, 2016. And B, like, we don't know if the oil price is going to come back or when it's going to come back. So they did a reasonable thing, which was stop, sell off a lot of things, fire a lot of people. You know, if, if they'd known that oil demand globally would return to the extent that it did, maybe they would have done things differently. But, you know, they didn't have the money available at the time. And investors there, I mean, we could say it's like they're being short-termist, but you know, they might have been excessively, I mean, they, they, they do expect to get paid back. And, and up until that point, investors in, in shale oil in the United States had just lost, I saw an estimate, I think it was half a trillion dollars of, of wealth had been vaporized over the past, like previous bank, bankruptcies in 2020 and bankruptcies in 2016. So you can understand why they would have been cautious 
reasonably cautious about you know ramping up production and, and you know maybe not investing in, in maintaining new drilling sites or new rigs or refineries that were decades old. You know, it makes sense individually, but now as a society, we're worse off. Hmm. So yeah, short term, but it was a rational decision at the time. Um, how much more, and I'm assuming it's more, so correct me if I'm wrong, how much more is our current economy driven by consumer spending versus 40 years ago when inflation was, you know, even higher than it is today? It's not that different. Um, it's pretty... In general, consumer spending is, is relatively stable as a share, at least of the U.S. economy. One, one thing I would say, though, that's a little tricky for this, you know, what counts as consumer spending versus not is kind of sometimes arbitrary. Uh, I don't know how, how detailed you want to get into this, but for example, if, if a car rental company buys a car, that's business investment. If I buy a car, that's consumer spending. You know, from the car maker's perspective, it doesn't make a difference, right? That's still, you know, it's a car, they're selling it to somebody, but what that affects for the price of cars, again, doesn't really matter who's buying it. Um, so I, th I think like those kinds of things can, can be tricky. I'm not sure that's, in the U.S. case anyway, is not, I think, probably the huge driver. Understood. Uh, so what are the primary factors that are driving inflation today? Uh, is it mostly supply and demand being out of whack? Yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, it's always going to be supply and demand being out of whack. It's sort of the question that's tricky is, you know, what is contributing to that and what should we do about it is the other complicated question here. So I've looked at this a lot, and basically one approach I would I mean, the approach I found useful, just saying, okay, look, literally which categories of goods and services are actually causing prices to go up the most. And what we've seen is basically, you know, up until about March, 2021, inflation was not happening. And then pretty dramatically after that, inflation becomes a really serious problem. And so what are the categories of goods and services that drove this? Overwhelmingly, and this is kind of surprising because these are not big shares of the total consumer spending basket, but overwhelmingly it's Things involving motor vehicles, so new cars, used cars, car parts, car maintenance, car rental, car insurance, and energy. Those two categories are not, I think it's like 20% of the total basket in terms of the overall consumer spending weight, but they account for something like 70% of the excess inflation that we've experienced. So if inflation is normally around 2% a year and we've had, you know, closer to you know, I guess cumulatively, it's more like 12% in total because it's been more than a year, right? Um, most of that excess is attributable to motor vehicle related and energy, which is, and those are areas where we know independently from reading the news and looking at data on, on volumes, those are supply constrained. Like we know, for example, that in the US alone, there were 4.2 million fewer cars and trucks produced in American factories since February 2020 than would have been expected based on what happened in 2019. And a typical year, auto sales, you know, before the pandemic, a typical year was like 17 million cars sold, new cars and trucks. So 4.2 million missing is a huge amount. And we can see that very clearly in the price data. Same thing with oil. I mentioned US oil drilling. We get weekly data on this from the government. Oil drilling is lower than it was before the pandemic. It's, it's come back a bit, but it's still lower than before the pandemic gasoline demand, diesel demand, jet fuel demand is still either the same or slightly lower than it was before the pandemic. Um, refining capacity is down. Exports are up. So again, it's very clear that there's a situation where at least U.S. demand is not the thing that's out of whack here, but supply is down and global demand for some things is, is higher. And so that's, that's having an impact. And there are other areas we can look at too. Um, you know, airline fares, a lot of the things affecting that is energy is a big thing that's affecting that. And also to a lesser extent, 
another business that made sort of rational choices at the time when basically no one got on a plane in the beginning of the pandemic a lot of airlines said we have these expensive older pilots we can buy them out have them take early retirement and save money which made sense at the time but now air traffic demand has gone up passenger demand is it's not back if you look at the tsa numbers they publish every day how many people are going through tsa checkpoints in the airport it's still lower than it was before the pandemic for this time of year but it's a lot closer uh, than it was and yet prices are relatively elevated and some of that's due to jet fuel but some of that's due to the fact that there are fewer pilots and you, you know, you're hearing stories constantly about flights being canceled or delayed and it's because they're not enough pilots because they laid them off or bought them out and so you know again these are like very clear we can point to on the other side of things there is an element of you know wages have gone up a bit you know wage growth has been faster than it was before the pandemic and you know there's more consumer spending power available people you know, not now, but, you know, at least as of a few months ago, we're sitting on very large increases in stock prices and much lower mortgage interest rates. So they were able to cash out home equity and that also boosted spending. So there were elements there that were pushing up prices, but that doesn't seem like it was the dominant factor. There's an element of it, but, as, you know, if we're thinking about inflation being, you know, roughly say like eight, nine percentage points faster than it should have been, you know, from 2% a year, 9% a year, or 8, 10% a year, that kind of thing. Most of that is not due to sort of too much money available. If there's too much money versus not enough stuff, it's mostly a not enough stuff phenomenon. You mentioned this earlier, you touched on it rather, in, in, in regards to the too much money available. So one of the criticisms that you might hear is that the government spending that happened because of the pandemic is part of what's causing inflation. Is that not necessarily the case? Yeah, I think it might be a little bit the case, but I think it's very important to also consider what the counterfactual would have been. Like, What would the alternative have looked like realistically, and would we actually have preferred that? So the way I think about this is that we know that we had this enormous disruption to the economy. You know, when the pandemic first hit, 30 million people lost their jobs in a workforce of 159 million people, which is enormous. Businesses shut down all over the place. A lot of businesses that didn't shut down had to deal with dramatic declines in sales. You know, basically no one went to the restaurant, no one went to a dentist, no one went to the movies, no one got in a plane. Businesses that should have been fine were suddenly thinking, oh, well, no one's buying ads anymore. So I have to, you know, cut back on hiring. So even like tech companies that seemed like they were fine working from home, whatever, they were losing money in the beginning of the pandemic. There was a serious danger that the massive shock to spending in certain categories would have spread and cascaded to the entire rest of the economy so that no one would have been safe and that we would have had essentially a Great Depression level event, if not worse. And the response that we got was basically the right one, which is you throw money at the problem. You know, Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, said this. He made this point well in in the very beginning of the pandemic. It was early March of 2020. He said, look, we have economic time has stopped in the sense that no one is going out and doing things that they used to do or a lot less. But people still have bills to pay, financial time. People still have bills to pay. They still have debts that they owe, obligations to workers and suppliers and everything. And we have to make sure that all that money keeps flowing or there's going to be a serious problem. And that's basically what happened. The government, you know, targeting that optimally was very difficult. We didn't have the resources to target things well. So we basically just sent a lot of money to everybody. But it worked in the sense that the economy shrank a lot. But consumer spending on the whole didn't fall as much. People actually were able to still buy a lot of things, even if they were different things. And, you know, by the time that with the public health situation improved and you are getting people vaccinated and things like that, we were able to have a relatively rapid recovery. And in fact, uh, you can compare how the U.S. economy has done 
over the past couple of years relative to what various forecasters were expecting before the pandemic. So the OECD, for example, publishes forecasts for major economies. They had one come out, I think, in November or December of 2019. So it's a very good benchmark. We can say, okay, what were they thinking back then, right before the pandemic hit, for where we'd be sort of the end of 2021? And you could say, where were we actually at the end of 2021? Unsurprisingly, everyone is worse off. No, no country is, is doing, is, you know, completely missed it. But of the major economies, the U.S. is the closest to the pre-pandemic forecast, uh, which is kind of impressive because our public health response was not particularly good. The other countries that came closest were the countries that did way better at dealing with the pandemic itself. So South Korea, Australia, and Japan. But even they didn't do as well economically as the U.S. did. And I think that's a testament to the fact that the money that was distributed uh, was very helpful at preventing kind of a very severe outcomes. We didn't have millions of people getting evicted, tens of millions. We didn't have you know, millions of foreclosures and defaults. We didn't have this huge cascade of business failures and people not getting rehired. We didn't have mass starvation. Right? These are the kinds of things that honestly could have happened if it hadn't been for a very vigorous government response in 2020, and quite frankly, even going into in, in 2021. And that, I think, is, is, is really important. And so when we say, oh, okay, there was too much money that was spent that led to inflation, I mean, maybe. But again, the, the inflation is really a reflection mostly not of the there's too much money. It's really mostly a reflection of the fact that we've just producing less in certain key categories. And that is really unfortunate and it reflects a lot of problems and you know some businesses failed many millions of people globally have died right i mean there are lots of serious problems here in the economy if the way those problems manifest is inflation that is not good but again i mean they would have there would have been some economic cost one way or another to this kind of disruption and of the kinds of costs we could have had I think that inflation that we've experienced is, relatively speaking, the best outcome. It's not a good outcome, but I mean, the better outcome would have been no pandemic. So we have to kind of have, you know, we have to manage our expectations here. Understood. Um, I want to take a moment to reintroduce our guest. Matthew Klein is an author and founder of The Overshoot. It's a subscription-supported publication that focuses on the intersection of economics, finance, business, and public policy. In the past, he's worked for Bloomberg, The Financial Times, and most recently, he was the economics commentator for Barron's. We're discussing our current economy, which features historically high inflation and historically low unemployment. If you'd like to engage with us about this conversation, find us on Facebook at WGCU Public Media, and on Twitter, we're at WGCU you use the hashtag GCL. So let's talk about unemployment and how it might factor into all this. We do have uh, pretty, you know, historically low unemployment. Is that what was happening back in the mid mid to late 70s and early 80s? Was it also low unemployment or is this a different thing? Not really. I mean, the the unemployment inflation link is a complicated one. I don't give it a ton of credence. I actually had a long piece about this come out just on Tuesday. And essentially, here's a very simple way of looking at it. The unemployment rate as of July 2022 was 3.5%. The unemployment rate in February 2020 was 3.5%. So the fact the unemployment rate is low, and it is low, is not in and of itself indicative or explanation for the inflation we have, because we obviously didn't have this kind of inflation problem before the pandemic, and the unemployment rate was just as low as it is now. So we need to have some other kind of explanation for what's going on. There are a couple of mechanisms that economists talk about, and, and some of them I, I don't really believe. I, I mean, one thing is also your specific question. In the 70s and 80s, unemployment rate was higher, uh, sometimes substantially higher, and inflation was worse. 
Now, it's true that inflation ended in the early 1980s after a prolonged period of unemployment being very high. The downturn of the early 1980s was extremely severe. At the time, it was frequently described as the worst since the Great Depression, and it lasted for a couple of years, and you had huge swaths of the economy having serious problems. But then that ended, and the unemployment rate came back down, and inflation didn't go back up. So, you know, whether inflation, so I, I, I personally don't put a lot of stock in either the unemployment rate is, is too low. We are seeing wage growth being relatively robust. We're seeing workers in general feeling pretty good and confident that they can leave a job that's not treating them well for another job that will be better. Um, but that in and of itself, I don't think really explains inflation as we've been experiencing it for the reasons I was saying before, which is that for all of that we talk about, you know, wages growing or other things, consumer spending is mostly is 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 rising. Consumer spending has gone up by less than wages. If we're just looking at dollar term wage income, both of those things have not gone up very much relative to inflation. And so there there has to be other forces at work. I mean, wage growth has been relatively strong over the past you know six months or whatever, but inflation has been far far worse, uh, which is painful and not and unpleasant, but it also means that the inflation we've experienced is clearly not attributable to the relatively decent wage growth we've seen. So if inflation is determined by consumer spending, is housing costs and rental costs part of that equation? And you know they're both very high, seemingly turning the corner, but where does housing fit into this? That's right. So rental costs absolutely contribute to inflation. They are in fact the largest component of the price index. Um, and those that happens to be the component that generally tracks wage growth the most. And so wage growth is rising relatively briskly compared to the past, something on the order of say six percent a year versus you know two to three percent pre-pandemic. Rental growth has accelerated a couple of percentage points as well. Again, we're talking about like two or three percentage points at the yearly rate. You know, three to six is something, but it's not two to 10, which is what we've actually seen on the inflation. So there's a lot more going on there. But yes, they're definitely an element of that. Um, some of the what we've seen with rents, though, and this is tricky, is, is reflecting not just the fact that wage growth has been strong, but also a catch up because there was a period in you know 2020, basically 2020 until you know May of 2021, where rents actually were either falling or flat or rising much less than you would have expected. And so if you look kind of at what was the pre-pandemic trend in rents, what would you might have expected there to have happened? Actual rents were running pretty far below that until you know a year or so ago, and they started to come back. And we basically returned to the trend as of now. We'll probably keep going for a bit at the faster rate because of, of what we've seen with wage growth, but uh, it's not it's important to sort of put that in context in sort of the longer term picture. House prices are kind of a different phenomenon because house prices are affected by rents to a degree, but they're also very heavily affected by financing costs. And so when mortgage rates went from, you know, five and a half to two and a half percent, that is automatically going to mean that, you know, someone who could afford a given monthly payment before the pandemic, they can afford a heck of a lot more house for the same monthly payment when mortgage rates go from five and a half to two and a half or three. And that's what happened. And so you had a period of time when house prices were rising very rapidly and rents were either flat or falling. And so basically everyone was better off. Um, now we're sort of in a little different scenario where mortgage rates are higher, house prices have um, 
new house prices have actually been dropping pretty quickly, although it's sort of hard to tell how much of that is like the mix of what are the new houses that are being sold. Um, but you know, there's definitely, I think, going to be kind of an, an adjustment there. Um, we've, we've only got about a minute left, so I can't give you too much time on this. But um, from your perspective, are we in a strengthening economy or a weakening economy? And is it weird to not know the answer to that question? Yeah, it is weird. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say that relative to when we were kind of in the maximum recovery phase in, say, like the middle of 2021, when things are really going strong with reopening and all of that, um, we're not as strong as that for sure. I don't think we're actually in a situation where the economy is shrinking outright. The GDP data have been saying that that's the case so far in the first six months of this year. I think there's some questions with that. I've written in more detail about why, but I mean, the short version is if we're in a weakening economy, it's very weird for companies to be hiring more and more workers and paying them more and more money. Uh, and also for corporate profits to be rising or at least not falling pretty dramatically. These are, and tax receipts are going up. I mean, there's lots of data that, that is available both from the private sector and the government that suggests the economy is not shrinking, but it's not necessarily growing as fast as it was. So uh, that would be sort of my, my short version. All right. Thank you to our guest. Matthew Klein is an author and founder of The Overshoot. Uh, It's a subscription-supported publication that focuses on the intersection of economics, finance, business, and public policy. Matthew, thank you so much for sharing some time with us today and your economic insights. Thank you very much for having me. You can find links to Matthew's work at The Overstreet and his 2020 book, Trade Wars Are Class Wars, How Rising Inequality Distorts the Global Economy and Threatens International Peace, which he co-wrote with Michael Pettis on our website, wgcu.org gcl. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Tara Callaghan and myself. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Tara Callaghan is also our social media coordinator. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is NPR for Southwest Florida, 90.1 WGCU-FM, Fort Myers, Naples, and Punta Gorda, and 91.7 WMKO Marco Island, a member-supported service of Florida Gulf Coast University.